It's January 10th, 2022. This is Rook. Welcome to episode 162 of Rook. Hope you're keeping well wherever you're tuning in from around the world. Salam, dustan, aziz, durud. Hello to you from Toronto, Canada. Welcome to one of our special themed episodes of Rook in the next couple of weeks. Hi, Groovy Shaya. Hi, uh, Today we are focusing on the tennis titans, two remarkable humans of Iranian descent, both of them having been outstanding athletes on the tennis courts, and both of them now located in France. First up, the legendary star player and international favorite, Mansour Bahrami, and then the young talent who rose from a modest Persian family to become a top-ranked tennis star in the early 2000s, Aravon Rezaei, both of them still playing, both of them in France. Coming up, we are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms and where you can become a patron or a sponsor. We're on our ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. We're on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and CastBox. And if you'd like to see some visuals with Rook or see us on social media, switch over to YouTube or Instagram right now at Rook Media. And if you like your descriptions and bulletins in English and in Persian, check us out on Telegram. All right. Let's get to our guests. This is a special themed episode of Rook. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is the Tennis Titans. Imagine being a teenage tennis prodigy living in a sports complex, housing 14 courts, and not being allowed to step foot on one. Imagine teaching yourself to play tennis with dustpans, frying pans, or a plank of wood before you ever own your first tennis racket at the age of 13. Imagine that despite all of your unorthodox equipment and dearth of practice, you get the opportunity to play for the first time on a court only when the national team is short one player. Then you make it to the Davis Cup and you help your national team all by the age of 16. You're widely seen as one of the best new players on the international scene. And then boom, a revolution in your country shifts power to a government that considers tennis a, quote, Western capitalist and elitist sport and slams shut all tennis courts in the country and with it, your prospects of being one of the world greats in your prime. Well, my first guest today is a legendary doubles player, a tennis star, and an international favorite. He's also one of the most talented tennis tricksters of all time, a maverick who can serve while holding six tennis balls in one hand, a man who chats with the crowd whilst feeding lobs to his opposition, a man who can catch tennis balls in his pocket while playing an improbable winning shot. 
Mansour Bahrami is an Iranian French former professional tennis player who reached the French Open doubles final in 1989, and he has been a mainstay of the seniors' invitational tennis circuit for more than 20 years running some of the legend's meets. Mansoor is considered to have found his niche on the ATP Champions Tour, where his flamboyant style and propensity for spectacular shots jived with the tour's more entertainment-oriented mandate. In reference to his own showmanship, his 2009 English-language autobiography is titled The Court Jester. He still plays tournaments with greats around the world, and right now, Mansour Bahrami joins me from Paris, France. Hello, monsieur. Hello. Hello to you and all the people who are listening to us. What a great pleasure it is to speak to you. Merci, que, oh, my dear. We're really happy to have you on this program. It's a pleasure. I want to get into your whole story, but before I do, uh, you're widely known as not just a great player, Mansoor, but the great entertainer. Uh, especially in recent years, you've made it clear that winning comes second to you after wanting the audience to really enjoy themselves. And it, it's a really lovely sentiment, but it's not something we often hear from athletes who seem to uh, be trained to just want to win, win, win. Where does the incentive to entertain come from in you? Jian, you know, when I started playing tennis, there was no money. I didn't play tennis to become rich. It was a game that was forbidden for me. And we would go uh, out of the tennis club, outside somewhere, you know, just make it like a tennis court as a, a 10 years old, nine years old kid can do, you know. We do our lines and then put a net hmm. and then... Uh, I would play with my friends with a dustpan, with a piece of wood, and we were just having fun. It was a fun and fun game, and we would do all these trick shots, you know, we would try to do who's doing better trick shots, you know, and uh, so this, is, this stayed on me. And you say why I do that? I never had a tennis lesson in my life. I never had a mm. tennis coach in my life, you know, and so once uh, you are uh, self-taught, you know, you're doing it alone, yeah, and no one is there to tell you, no, you cannot do this, you're not allowed to do that, you have to do a decent tennis, serious point, you have to win. So it's, it's just stayed stay the game for me. You know, when I start, people always seems to enjoy my game, even if when I was 10, 12 years old, hitting against the wall, people would just stop and say, wow, how you do that? Hmm. I'm, I don't know. I still don't know. I just tell them, you know, I don't know. I, I, I just played like this all, all my life. And uh, you said winning is secondary for me. I, look, I love to win. It's not that I'm, I, love, I like to lose. The main thing for me is when people leaving after my match, I love to see people with a big smile. It has happened that I have sometimes won a match. And I thought that, okay, but people didn't really enjoy it that as much as I wanted them to enjoy it. Mm -hmm. So it was like a loss for me. I feel like I am uh, going on the uh, stage, on a theater, and then people are there. <laughs> and I feel like I'm, I'm a, like a one-man show. I do, I do my stuff, and I love to see people with a big smile. 
That's that's my goal. It's so. I mean, this is why people love you too, because they they can feel that that, that you're there for them. Uh, there's so much you just said there. I want, I'm going to get into the, those ten best years that you lost, but but you know, I have to say, when you talk about because uh, I've seen you in other interviews, you say, "I don't know, I don't know how I'm doing these tricks." I don't. I, I'm sorry, I'm not going to say that you're Yeti uh, Valley. You, I, I don't believe you. I think you must know. I think you are a master who knows exactly what you're doing and you play this guy who says i don't know i'm just but your shots are too spectacular for you to not know how you're no, doing it. i don't lie i i <laughs> i have no one ever taught me these things you know when for example uh, people tell me i can i held 21 balls in my hand once people tell me how you do that the only explanation i had for this was that from age five to age 13, I was ball boying for people. I was ball boying from five o'clock in the morning and sometimes till eight, nine at night. And just sometimes I had all these balls in my hand and waiting <laughs> for, the, for the man who was playing to, to ask me for a ball. So I think uh, this comes to my mind. That's, that's how and that's why I learned to keep the 21 balls in hand. I can serve with nine balls in the hand and toss one without dropping the others. But nobody, nobody came to tell, okay, Manso, I want to teach you how to serve with eight balls, nine balls, six balls. <laughs> I, I just do it myself. And I tried this and I see people laughing. They're having a good time. And I say, great, I'm so happy to be able to make people laugh, which is not always easy. I'm not a very funny man in the everyday life. But on the tennis court, I am the happiest man in the world. And I'm, I could be the funniest man on the court, uh, you know, because that I know since 40 years, 50 years, I make people laugh and, and, uh, and they say thank you. And that is the best salary for me, mm. just to see them smile and say, Mansur, we had good time. Thank you for this. Sometimes people tell me, Mansur, you know, my wife hated tennis. So I brought it. Since she saw you, she's playing tennis. She wants <laughs> to play tennis. People tell me this every day. And, and this is why I'm still at 64 playing. And I, this is what I like to hear. This is what I like to see that people having fun and enjoying. And, and, and that's, uh, that's great. I mean, I, I love it. My only point was you're also a great player and there's no way that you're as good as you are without practicing. So you make it seem easy, but those tricks are the tricks. Of, I mean, there's a reason why uh, McEnroe and Elita Stasi and all these guys consider you one of the greats. It's because you, of your technique too, right? They are very kind with me, you know. I mean, I have had the honor and uh, privilege to play with the, the, the biggest name of our sport, you know, and which is not given to to many people, you know. I, I played with people like Rod Laver, you know, who is our, um, the god of tennis, yes. you know. I played with uh, Ken Rosewall, Newcomb, uh, Roach, uh, you know, and then coming down to Santana, uh, Nastasi, Connors, Borg, and, and it's been fantastic. and and. When Jimmy Connors started his tour, you know, in back in 1994, we knew each other. We have played some exhibitions in Europe. He said, Mansur, I want you to play every tournament of my tour. 
And it was great, you know. So I said, yeah, I mean, it wasn't because I was a, a Grand Slam winner or, or num past number one. It was just because I, I was doing something that the others didn't or couldn't do it, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's why I was there. And I was the, the only one who was playing every tournament of Jimmy. And that was fantastic. Take me back. I want to actually um, go step by step through how we got to where you are today. You have this remarkable story. And, you know, all of us in the Iranian diaspora are affected by the events of Iran in the last uh, 41 years. But you're one of these very difficult stories. Um, first of all, let's go back before the Angela, before the revolution. What was yes. your what was your early childhood like in Iran? What do you remember as a little, little kid? My, my great parents, they were farmers. They lived in a village in Iraq which is like 300 kilometers from Tehran. They had a lot of livestock and everything. They lost everything. I was born in 1956, in April 1956. Nine months after my father and mother and the family, they came to Tehran because my father, my grandparents lost everything. And my fa father came to Tehran. He didn't have anything. He was already 59 years old and he had a job as a, a gardener in Amjadie Stadium. Amjadie was the paradise on earth for me, the best place in all my life. If everything has to come back to 1957, 58, I would love to do the same thing and come back to Amjadie. And, and my father had a gardener job in this uh, sport complex, Amjadie Stadium. And I was two, three years old. I started walking and I saw every sports court and field and everything and it was okay i could go anywhere i had no people they knew me you know they were ah this is mansoor they get little mansoor and i had no problem doing any others i mean to going to football field basketball volleyball swimming and everything but tennis every time i came to the court they kicked my ass and they set out you know and so hmm. uh, i couldn't understand why they they don't want me here so uh, after coming back and back and then and I was five, six years old, they said, okay, you can come here and you can, you are only allowed to do, to do ball boy. You are not allowed to go on court and hit on the courts. I was happy. I was playing uh, ball boying for 10 cents an hour, you know, and, and then uh, I, I loved the game and I just wanted to, to play tennis because well, it wait was a second forbidden. so so when you were you see all of these sports lots of kids especially running kids would love for example football or soccer you know yeah, uh, you yeah. see all these sports do you remember what it was because this was going to become now the rest of your life decades of your do you remember first seeing tennis what it was about this sport that so captured your imagination the, the very very first thing was that the only sport that i could I was in, you know, uh, sleeping. I would wake up by the sound of the ball hitting, <laughs> being hit by a racket, you know. Wow. Five in the morning, 5.30 in the morning, because in Tehran, you know, uh, especially in the summertime, it gets so hot after like 9, 10, people don't play tennis anymore until 4, 5 in the afternoon, and then it cools down, and then they come back and play. But... Uh, that's why the five, when I say five in the morning, five in the morning was the busiest time of, of playing tennis. People would come at five in the morning. I could hear the sound of the ball. And it's just something that I, I 
I think I, I liked and I would just come up and go and, and see people play and, and later on be ball boy and, and, and you know I was making 10 cents per hour that was the, the fee that the, we were getting uh, and I'm guessing was, I'm guessing that in I mean not that this would be unique to Iran this is the this was the case all over the world it's become a little more accessible now but I'm guessing there was a real class divide like tennis was more for rich people right? You know, tennis, it was in Iran in 1965. I think we had maybe in the whole country, we had maybe 35, 40 tennis courts, oh. not not clubs. Huh? I'm, I'm saying in Tehran, we had Amjadiye Stadium and that's it. Wow. And you had the, the, the English uh, embassy who had the one court, French embassy had the court, American embassy had the court, but that was for, for themselves. But beside that, you had in the whole country, you had 35, maybe 40 courts. And then later on, we had the Imperial Country Club and then the Taj Tennis Club and, and many, many others. But uh, tennis was a new sport, you know, and and it was for the elite. And, and yeah. uh, uh, just because of that, there were so many people wanted to play, mainly rich people. And, and so there was no room for me to go and play. So there's this mental image that I have of, of you playing with frying pans. Um, and uh, because you love this sport, but you don't have... Uh, uh, and and there's, there's, there's so many great... Uh, almost mythical stories of great athletes, you know, uh, um, great soccer players who played with bare feet or, or hockey players who had to borrow uh, skates and, and stuff them full of newspapers to fit the right size. And you're there with frying pans. When was the first time you got your hands on a, a real racket, on a real tennis court? Uh, when I was, you know, like 12 years old, I was ball boying for Shizad Akbari. Shizad Akbari was my idol. Yeah, he was playing Davis Cup for Iran. I was ball boying for him. He was giving tennis lesson, you know, for living. And I was ball boying. So one day he said, Mansoor, if you uh, ball boy properly today, I have a gift for you. I said, OK, I'm going <laughs> to do the best I can. At the end of the evening, he gave me a racket. And uh, I was 12 years old. And so here I am with my first racket of my life and so I was so excited so happy that I have a real racket mm. I couldn't sleep really that night and then day after I have my racket I come to the tennis court it's like one in one in the afternoon there we had 13 courts in the Amjadia stadium and every every court was empty and it was like a hot summer day you know and I had a friend there he was allowed to play uh, and he said Mansur let's go play let's go play try your racket you know she's your first racket and everything so I couldn't wait and I really had to take this risk and talk, go to the court and we went and we, we played like maybe 45 seconds max one minute and I saw myself surrounded by the guards and um, so all they needed to ask me was Mansur you know F off, go out, you know, and I knew that I would I have to go, so no problem. But uh, one of these guys, he, he, he grabbed me, he stopped me, he uh, took me over his head uh, for six, seven times, and he smashed me on the ground. And uh, I swear to God, I 
thought that it was the last day of my life. Yes. So uh, there was blood all over the place. I couldn't really move anymore. And he went towards my racket and I said to him, please don't touch my racket. And he gave me a very bad look and, and he, he took my racket. He put it on a step and he smashed it in two and, and it was like he broke and he broke my racket. That was the first uh, memory of my first racket. It's, it's, I mean, your story is amazing, not just because we'll get to the revolution where that derails your, your career, obviously, but even before that, there's so many obstacles, you know, your, um, uh, you don't have the, the equipment, uh, you, you, and, and then you're, you're, you're beaten up and, and your racket is smashed. Nevertheless, by the age of 16, you become selected to be part of the Iranian Davis Cup team, and, and you become one of the country's top players, effectively. And, and Mansour, I mean, you said in the beginning you didn't, you know, you just saw this as a fun thing, but when you're 16 and then you're with the Davis Cup, did you know at this point that there were tennis stars making a lot of rod labor, making a lot of money playing this sport? Did it occur to you at that age in Iran that this could actually be a career? Well, I knew that there were stars. I knew about Rod Laver. I knew about Ken Roosevelt. But no, I was not aware of how much money they make or anything. When I was 12, 13, we didn't have television. Uh, we, didn't, we couldn't see the tennis tournaments. So no, I was not aware how much money they're making. But uh, I know that as soon as uh, they allow me to play, when I was 13, they said, okay, Mansur, Federation said, Mansur, now you can go on court anytime you want, as much as you want. Here is two rackets and you play. And I start winning. When I was 14, I won under 16 and under 18, uh, the, you know, even with a piece of wood, I could have beat people who <laughs> played since t 10 years, even today. I'm able to beat people who play, you know, club members uh, with with a piece of wood. I bet I can go on court and, and beat them, you know. So and that was I was making a lot of bet betting that you know with a piece of wood with a, a frying pan I can beat you. And people would say, no, how can you do? I said, okay, let's go to the court. We bet I don't know ten bucks, ten dollars, and, and we, that's why I was making my money. So uh, by the time I became 16, 17, I was top three, four player in Iran, you know. Uh, but again, when uh, when I was 20, the, everything stopped. Yes. You know, we had a, one of the biggest uh, ATP tournaments in Iran in 1977. That was the last time we did it. And uh, it was canceled for 78 because there was hundreds of thousands of people in the streets and no one could there go and play tennis right. so in 79 in february 79 islamic republic was officially installed but in 78 we didn't play 79 we didn't play 80 we didn't play you know so but you're this you're, you're this player in your prime and I, I, I want to get to your personal story, but first of all, for, for those non-Iranians listening or, or for anyone who doesn't remember how exactly this went down, and I'm sorry to make you be the person to explain this to us, but why on earth would a sport be entirely banned by a regime? What, what was their exact reasoning? Well, they said uh, tennis, especially tennis, they said is an um, uh, American uh, capitalist game we don't want. They tried to uh, stop every sport but uh, the one was which was more damaged was like tennis because it was for the elite 
because they said we don't want because the ladies they were playing with the sh you know skirts very short skirts right, right. and and i left but like three four years later they finally opened because there were many many people who were living from tennis so they put pressure and myself in the uh, summer of uh, 1980 we were there every day with the Ministry of Sport, asking them, please open and thing. And finally, we came with this idea of doing a tournament uh, called uh, Revolution, Revolution Cup. Cup. Let me get to that. But, for, but, yes. but first, you, you then at this point, you're one of the best players in the country. You're, you're top three, uh, if not number one. Do, do you remember when you first heard you would no longer be able to play tennis can, can you take us back to the emotion you would have felt hearing that your country is banning the sport that you're number one of well in, in 1978 when we had this tournament was uh, going to happen in 77 78 i you know i was uh, traveling to play the ATP tournaments and then things were going really rough in Iran and, and dangerous people sometimes people were dying you know sometimes in the revolution uh, there was fire everywhere and, and so uh, I came back to, to Iran and, and uh, many people those who were playing tennis were mainly you know the elite and many of them left Iran so the, the course automatically be, became with no clients nobody right. was playing i couldn't go there play just alone for uh, there was it was very dangerous people would come to the club and could just kill you you know or, or beat you up or and then the tournament that we had which was called ariamer cup uh, it was one of the biggest tournament i think there was two three tournaments were paying hundred and fifty thousand dollars and iran was one of them hmm you know prize money so uh, the tournament just they said we can't uh, impossible to to organize is very dangerous so we had to like two weeks before the tournament everything was cancelled and so and then but we stayed there we couldn't do anything we just were playing backgammon all day for to to pass the time until a few months after officially they just put the locks on the every door of the clubs and then we saw there was like trees were growing on the clay court, which was very, wow. very heartbreaking for for me and, and my friends, uh, tennis players. You were a young man still at this point. You're in your early 20s. I mean, did, did your, what were your parents saying? What were you close with? Were they saying just, hey, stay away, don't, don't give up this tennis stuff at this point? No, my parents really didn't know what exactly tennis is. My, my, my father knew that there was tennis court. My mother never saw me play tennis. My father never saw me play tennis. My mother saw me for the first time play tennis in France. You know, many years after when I invite her to come. Sorry, so even when you're number one in the late 70s in Iran, they don't know how they don't watch you play? No, no, but they didn't, uh, they never came to any tournament to, to watch me because, uh, as I said, uh, it was for the elite and we were not the elite. So I was sometimes even, uh, I was one of the best tennis player, top two, three, 
you know, and I was going to play with some friends of mine who are, one of them is, is in New York, uh, my friend John Gear, he's a great man, I love him, I talk to him today, I talk to him every day. And he was member of the club Imperial, I would go with my friend Kambiz de Rafshavon, we were Asian champion, we would go play with, with our friends there, and uh, when the director was coming, we had to hide. To, because wow. he could kick us out. <laughs> I don't understand that. You know, you can go here. I go any to any club. People come to me. Ah, oh, Mansur, thank you for coming. And but in my you know home, they, it wasn't like that. It must it have been hard like for you. You're on the you're on the Davis Cup team to not be able to share how good you it was, were with it your was parents. Very hard. It was very hard, but that was only in that club. But most of the time, like it was, it was good. But we had a crazy director in that club and, and uh, he, he, he didn't allow us. And, and, and uh, until one day, one of the, the members that who was, we were playing with, he stopped in front of the man and he said, hey, listen, man, you have to do your best two top players here you have to be proud you know and you're so and he said if you say something i'm going to smack you and so from then on it was uh, it was easier we could go and, and play there's there's the so your t- your tennis career effect- effectively gets suspended in your prime with the with yeah. the revolution and there are some curious details about this period with you and uh, that I want to ask you about first of all you you re- you just mentioned it you repeatedly mentioned I've noticed in some interviews of you I was watching that you spent three years after the revolution uh, this is following the ban on tennis playing backgammon every day why why tachte why why backgammon what was that about because it was gambling you know the iranians they love to gamble you know they never do anything without saying i bet you shat me bandam i bet you this i bet you that so we didn't have anything else actually and nothing else to do you know everything country was on on fire everything was burning everything no no job for me i was i'm tennis player i'm not a banker i'm not a politician i'm not a uh, actor you know so uh, and, and backgammon, there was in the tennis court, tennis club, we were playing backgammon every day. People would come there and wait for their, uh, their court until the court is ready. While waiting, they were playing backgammon. So it, it was like a game that everybody plays. So we played backgammon for two, three years and, uh, and nothing else to do, 18 hours backgammon. <laughs> it was very, very, very sad and difficult to do that, but that was, that was all we had to do. There's nothing we could do. So you make your case to the authorities. Come on, let us play tennis. And you, you play a role in starting this thing called the Revolution Cup. And then in July 1980, you have this tournament where the prize is a, for the number one is, to, is, a, is a flight to Athens, right? And you, yes, you right. win. Tehran, Athens, Tehran. Yeah. So, so you win, but after winning the first prize, which is a ticket to Athens, you pay an extra couple hundred bucks and change your, your, your ticket to go to Nice, to go to France. Why did you choose Absolutely. France? Because my first thing would be America. I wanted to go to the to America. I had a visa valid from 1977, November 1977 till November 1981. But if you remember, in 1980 they had it's a, a crisis with the hostages. You yes. know, the American embassy was taken uh, by the students, a follower of Imam, and the, so the Americans they start kicking out all the Iranians, and they told us officially. 
Iranians are not allowed to come to America, even th those who have a valid visa, their visa is canceled. Right. So, uh, and I knew after America, the best place for tennis is France, because I had traveled in America, I traveled in Europe, I traveled in Africa, in Australia. I knew the best place would be France. Why? Because France is a, they, here we have 10,000 clubs and 10,000 clubs, they organize at least one tournament a year. Those days, and even today, France is the best place for practicing for the youngsters who want to become professional is the best place. Right. You can play very competitive tennis and you can make like, uh, uh, at that time I was making like 300, 400 to win a tournament, you know, just to survive, just to make my living, you know, and, and wait until I have an opportunity to, to play on the ATP to, tournaments. So that, that is why I came to France. And and you leave your uh, obviously you leave your family behind and and uh, yeah. your friends in, in in Iran and your girlfriend. Um, were you? Did you? In other words, you loved tennis. You had this passion so much for tennis that you knew this is what you had to do, despite all that you were going to have to lose to leave and do this. Absolutely, leaving my family was really not a pleasure to leave it was just really uh, my heart was broken and it still is there is not one hour in in day that i don't think about iran about my family who's back there you know and and the iranians but what could i do i, uh, I if the tennis was on i would never leave my country i love my country of iran but i had to go because i love tennis too and, and without tennis, I can't breathe. I can't leave. So I had to leave to play tennis. And I knew in Iran, I had nothing left. I had to spend all my money to continue living. I had to leave. I was very lucky. I was single. I, I had no, no kids or, or wife. So it was much easier to leave because when I came to France, it wasn't easy either because as some I had very very tough time for a well, year. Well, by the way, you, you say know. you say you didn't have you didn't, you spent your savings. You get to Nice. I don't know if this is a true story. I think you said in one interview, the first night you get to France, you gamble what you have at a casino in Nice. I left, I left at six thirty from Tehran, and I landed at ten thirty in Nice. And here I was speaking in English to the people. I needed help to show where I can go, what can I do. No one would even look at me. So after a while, I said, okay, what am I going to do? I went to the hotel. There was a, like a tourist office uh, desk there. And I went there and I said, please help me. I need a, a, a hotel room tonight. I have nowhere to sleep. And the lady there, she smiled at me. She said, wow, sure. 8th of August and you want a room. There is no, none, <laughs> zero. Everything is, is fully booked. And so I got out of the airport and I started walking and uh, beside the sea on the Promenade des Anglais, you know, and you're, you have the sea on your right and the, on your left you have all this, the, the street, the traffic. And so it was very hot. As you can imagine, uh, 8th of August in south of France. And so I'm right away by the beach and I see this 
ladies playing beach volley, you know, and, and all topless. And I don't know if I'm dreaming or if I'm really, this is real. I am pinching myself, you know, and because uh, you might laugh or smile when I say that, but living with the, the, the Ayatollahs for three years and a half, all you see the Ayatollah in the, in, the, in, in television and radio, you forget what uh, what is uh, outside of Iran. Right. So, uh, and I, you know, I walked, walked, walked for like two hours, and. I was hungry, I was thirsty, so I bought a sandwich and I bought a, a bottle of water and it cost me like nearly 20 francs. And I had in my pocket $2,000. That was everything I had. So that was like 8,000 francs. And I said, how am I going to do with 8,000 francs if I go to the worst hotel, if I go to the... Uh, if I eat the cheapest food, I can last for 10 days here, you know, 10, 12 days. And not knowing the language, there is no way I can find a club which, where I can, you know, play the club championship and uh, keep lessons or, you know. So here I'm sitting and I'm eating my sandwiches. And then in front of me, I see casino rule. <laughs> so this great idea comes to my head that I have to go to the casino and try to win 30, 40,000 francs. And so maybe I can stay here two, three months with this money, you know, to last three months, four months. As I say to myself, the longer I stay, better chance More I chance have of, to yeah. find a place, to right. a club, you know, to play for. So, and I say, if I lose, staying here 10 days or one day, it doesn't change anything. So I went to the casino and then 15 minutes later, I came up with zero cents. And that was like one in the afternoon, uh, and it's been only uh, three hours, and I'm in France, and I have no money left. So you're, I mean, just to, to recap, the best tennis player in Iran is yeah. in France, has lost all his money, there's a revolution back home, and you're this kid in, in your early 20s. Um, uh, it must have been a very confusing time to try to decide what you want to do. Yeah, it was really very, very hard, very, very difficult. And then, uh, so, you know, I come out and my head is like, I don't know what to think. I can't not even think. So finally, I have no choice. And I'm saying I, I have to go back. So I go to Iran Air office and I make my reservation for day after to go back to Tehran. And in the same time, I'm saying, Jesus, everybody is going to laugh at me, you know, and he say, you know, it's I'm ashamed, you know. And so I'm crossing the street and I see a friend that I had not seen for three, four years, Farrokh Moazed, which was a good tennis player. And he says to me, Mansoor, I'm so happy to see you. What are you doing? When are you came? When did you came here? And it's great, the best move you did. You had no future. Wait, hang, hang on. The same day that you've left the casino? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just you, out, out of the, <laughs> you're walking on the street in Nice and you happen to see a friend. This is a crazy yeah. story, Mazur. Yeah, I've never and heard this story friend, before. He's a very good friend of mine. And, and, uh, and he says to me, that was the best move you did to come out of Iran because there was no future for you. And I say, yeah. And he says, when did you come? I said, I came here this morning. 
But the problem is, I'm going back tomorrow. He says, what do you mean? I said, I just went to Casino Allah. He says, there is no way I'm going to let you, stupid. How could you go to Casino? I said, listen, man, this is done. This is done now. And so he says to me, listen, let's go. Uh, I'm playing this afternoon. There was a club tournament. He was in the final. He says, let's go there. Maybe we can see somebody who can help you from the Federation. So we go there and, and his opponent is the vice president of the tennis league of Côte d'Azur of South of France. So we tell the guy how, what is my level and how I'm playing. And, you know, I told him that I, two years, three years ago, we beat, I beat the, the French team in Gallia Cup, you know, and, and, uh, and he says, yeah, I heard of that. It was you in the team. I said, yeah, I won against the number two, number one, and, and we won against uh, France, and uh, which was disaster for French team. I thought we were a better team, and it was normal anyway. But uh, so uh, he says to me, well, if you, I don't know you, but if you say the truth, you have no problem staying here uh, and, and leaving of your tennis. But for that, you need to, I'm going to interview you to four or five tournaments you're going to play so I can see exactly what is your level of tennis. And so I said, OK. But then I said to my friend, Farouk, Farouk, this is fine. But, you know, for go, I have to go from, uh, from here to Toulon. But that was the first tournament, Toulon, day after I had to go. I said, I have, I, I have to pay my train and everything. I have no money. And he says, well, John Gear is here. You, I, this is a number, you call him and he, he'll, he'll help you. And John Gear, my friend, when I was 17, 18, he was the one who was sponsoring me to go and play on the ATP. And so I said, listen, I'm not gonna, it's impossible for me to call him to say I went to casino and I'm here in, 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 in Nice and, and he said, Mansur, I'll do. So he called John Gear and John Gear said, well, where are you? We are here. He said, I'll be there in one hour. John Gear came and he, I was very, I was very shamed. I was very, uh, uh, not very comfortable, you know, and I said, listen, I, I came here. I lost my money, stupid thing from my side. And, but this has happened. So now I need 2000 francs, which was like uh, $400. Otherwise, I have to go. And he said right away, he lent me the money. And I went to play my tournaments. But uh, and then I won three of five and two others I lost in the final. This is all, you know, without playing three years. So, so wait a sec. It's no wonder you remember the date, August 8th, because this is a remarkable, that that day is a book. I mean, that is a, a that's a crazy story. That, But the... As as invigorating as it must have been to at least see your friends there and start to feel like you get you, you might get something going in France, your yeah, your I visa soon lucky. your visa soon runs out, and then you become this illegal immigrant in France. And I understand you spend the next six years, kind of as this virtual prisoner in France because you because you you're you're an illegal immigrant, but you also refuse to become a political refugee. Why did you refuse to become a refugee? That is why my, my visa was ending on 29th of October. And so uh, the police, after that, I went and I please begged them to give me to extend my visa. They said, listen, you, uh, we are not going to extend your visa, not for a day, but you can 
apply, you can ask for asylum. You can ask for a political refugee. Uh, and you give us your passport. You can stay in France. You can work. You can do your tennis. You can travel everywhere you want. But you can never go back to Iran. Uh. And I said, there is no way I am going to forget about my father, my mother, my parents, and just say, it would have been very selfish. If I was alone, no family, that right away I would have asked for a, a political refugee. But I couldn't accept it because my father, when I left Iran that day of August 8, that was the first time he cried. We knew that is going to be maybe the last time we see us. Three years after, I went to see him just two days before he died. And he said, Mansur, I've been waiting a long time for this mm. moment. And he died. But uh, I think I would have never, I could never forgive myself if, if I had asked for refugee, political refugee, and, and not see him before he died. You know, you, you weren't unknown at this point in France, even after the first year that you're there, because you're so talented. By the age of 25 in 1981, you reach the third round of the French Open as a qualifier, and your cause to get a visa is a renewal of your visa in France. is taken up by influential French newspapers, L'Equipe, Le uh, Figaro. Uh, did that help? Jean, that was 1981. That was my last chance. I was illegal alien. I was an illegal here, okay? I was staying, hiding from the police. As soon as I see a police from 100 uh, yards from me, I would change my direction because I was afraid to, to stop by them and, and then they said, ask for my papers. I was afraid that they put me in the first flight and, and send me back. So when I got, I had the wild card to play the pre-qualifying so I won three runs on the pre-qualifying, and then I was in the qualifying draw. Three runs there, and then I came to the main draw. And when I won my first run against Jean-Louis Hayé, who was number four or five in France, I beat him in a straight set, and we were in war with Iraq. Iran was on the, the news every day. Right. And so that is when the media people, they helped me to get my paper sorted and I to get my, uh, they call it carte séjour here. You call it, I don't know, green card in America. Right, right. So uh, I, they asked me, who are you? What are you doing? Iranian. I said, yes, I'm Iranian. I'm a, a legal alien here. Uh, and, uh, and I just want to play tennis. And please, if you can help me to get my paper sorted, I want to live in this country and, and play tennis. And so they said, this is unbearable, um, this is impossible. We bring sometimes the dictators, the, 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 the criminals here, we give them hospitality, we uh, give them security, and this guy just wants to play tennis. And that time, uh, that year, we had only one FM station, ra radio station. And I did an interview, they played like 20 times during a day. After week after the French Open, I went to see the police, uh, the immigration office, and the same guy that who was asking me to leave the country, uh, he gave me my uh, resident card, which I could be a resident in France. It didn't mean that I can travel, right. because with Iranian passport, no one would give you visa. I wanted to come to Canada, they didn't give me visa. 
Even when I was married here and I had kids, I wanted to go to play Australian Open. The Australians didn't give me visa. So right. until 1989, I got my French citizenship. Yes, yes. So then everything became easy and I could travel and it was... Let, let me get to that because it, when you talk about the, the 10 best years, so we're dating it from uh, 79 to 89, where you lose your 10 best years in the prime as one of the best tennis players in the world. There's something else going on too, which is really interesting or... Um, kind of terrifying to me when I think about your story. You know, you, you you say after a while, France offers you the opportunity to play some small tournaments. You can't travel to other countries. But I was watching this Instagram Live interview you did with uh, Annabelle Croft, and you said for weeks at a time, you had you would have nowhere to sleep. You would walk the streets of Paris. You would often make one baguette last three or four days. You didn't have money. You didn't have resources. And I think about tennis players today who are scouted, you know, when they're eight years old. I think about the documentary on the Williams sisters, those incredible tennis players, and how they're out in the court with these resources or, you know, uh, 14 hours a day. And I'm thinking about you walking around in Paris with one baguette over three or four days and what that would do to you as an athlete what that would do to your even energy, let alone your skills. How could you even maintain being a tennis player in the midst of living in that kind of situation? You know, when you have no choice, the hope was giving me the energy to stay alive and, and to keep going. You know, there were so many nights I had nowhere to sleep. I never slept in the streets of Paris because I thought if I sleep one night there, that means I accept this way of life and I would maybe become one of those homeless people who sleeps under the bridges and everything. I walked all the nights and then uh, in the daytime I would go in Roland Garros in front of the, the Guardian's office. There was a bench, sofa, I would just sit there and sleep two, three hours there. One of those days I was sitting there and I could see on court three, Irina Stasi was practicing with Guillermo Villas. And so I'm sitting there, I don't want to disturb them. And uh, I don't even know if they remember me or anything. So I wait there, I kind of sleep and wake and sleep. And two hours later, they finish the practice. They're coming towards the guardian's office to give leave the ba uh, balls and everything. And they come towards me and I get up and I say, hello, Nasi. Guillermo, hello. And Nastasi says, oh my God, Mansour, I'm so happy to see you. Where have you been? How you have been? We thought that you were hung up, you were killed in the revolution or anything. No news. I'm so happy to, to hear from, to see you, you know. And he, which was very, very, for me, it was like a, a great to hear that he's, you know, his things like uh, he's happy to see me and he, t he told me Mansu can I do something for you if you need any help uh, or you know I can do many things here if you that night I had nowhere to sleep and I had nothing to, to eat I just told him everything is okay uh, nasty everything is good I came here to play and I'm not been long here and I'm going to but we'll see us and and and, and then we, you know he left but I didn't want uh, him to, you know, he could have probably say, come live with me if you have nowhere to mm. sleep uh, one week or two. But after that, what after that? 
I had to uh, find the right way, and that was not the right way for me. So I had to get out of this mess alone, and otherwise it wouldn't work. Mansur, as you say, um, things do turn around in 1989. You had turned, of course, uh, 33 years old by this time, but you get your French nationality. You're able to compete as a full-time professional player starting in 89. And that year you reached the Roland Garros doubles final at the French Open. And, you know, it, it is amazing the way you were able to come back, but you, you lost a decade of your prime as a tennis player. And yet, talking to you, seeing you in interviews, watching you on the court these days, you seem so incredibly gracious, so incredibly good-humored. In fact, you're known for your upbeat personality. It, it's, it's quite remarkable. Were you ever really bitter? No one would blame you if you were bitter. How did you not descend into some kind of morose bitterness for the rest of your life for having your career stolen from you? You know what, Jian? Uh, today there are many, many players who would have loved to be in my place. You know, I know that there are players who are top five. You know, they want to play, and you know, they are not asked to play. And I'm not bitter, no, because what can I do? Bitterness is can only hurt me. People they thought that I could have been, you know, great player. I, I don't know. I, I don't know how good I could have been. All I know that my best years, I was not allowed to play. I, I couldn't play. The, the, I think I'm a very lucky man. I'm so lucky. And, and to be 64 and to play in Wimbledon, no one has ever mm. played at 64 in Wimbledon. They have a policy of, for example, you know, when you get to 59, you play for the last time. And, and you know, the, the tradition and the, the, in Wimbledon, it's uh, very unique and, and it's a unique tournament and it's, it's the best tournament in the world. Yes. And they asked me to come back at 64 and to play again. And I've played every year. That is fantastic to change the, the rules for me. I think that is they have never done that for anybody. I'm very proud of that. You found this, you, you talked earlier about Jimmy Connors in, the, in, in 1993, the, the ATP Champions Tour was established. And you, you begin to then find your niche and you become, uh, it becomes this place for you to showcase your remarkable shots to audiences worldwide. And you become this magician on the tennis court that can do things with a racket that made you one of the most famous characters in, in today's Legends uh, doubles scene. Uh, what what is it about this for you now? Is it still the love of tennis, or is it getting to do something that you couldn't do for so many years of your life? No, it's the love of tennis. First of all, I don't ask anybody anything. I don't need to play. I can stay home and not to play, you know. But the crowd is something gives me so much energy. I love to entertain, and as long as I think I can entertain them, I'll go on the court and I play for them. And uh, it's nothing to do with, uh, you know, money or, 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 yeah, they give me a salary to play, but that is not the reason I'm playing. And it's just love of tennis and just thinking that I'm not going to play maybe in four years, in three years, or maybe in two years. It, it, that is hurting me more than anything else. I just love to play tennis. You you are now playing all over the world. I mean, when there isn't a pandemic, uh, you you're beloved. Crowds love you. Do you 
this story that we've just got, been through over the last hour, do you see your own story as one of redemption and inspiration, given that you all had to go through? Do you see yourself that way? People tell me that you are inspiration, and then people come to me and they say your life story, and uh, yeah, they, they, they tell me. And I think my book was bought in many schools because people came to me and they said this is for the kids at many uh, tennis schools even you know they told me you're buying for tennis school you know the kids they have to read this and yeah if it's if it can inspire someone i'm happy for that what is your best lesson that you can impart to those of us who feel like pursuing our dreams are impossible at times i think nothing is really impossible you know uh, uh just keeping the hope and never giving up. Uh, that is the lesson I got from tennis. And since I was five, six years old, I had all everything against, and I, I just kept coming back. 24 years ago, I create, we call it the, the Legends Trophy, Trophée de Légende in Roland Garros. Yes. And, uh, for four or five years, the director of the tournament was asking, I was asking him to let me organize the Legends Trophy and everything. And Patrice Clerc, he, he, that was his name, great man, very good man. And he said, Mansour, you, you know, uh, gold guys, you are not good. Let it, forget it. I'm, I'm not going, we're not going to do it. Nobody is interested. I kept coming back year after year. After like four or five years, he said, Mansu, I can't take you anymore. <laughs> uh, we're going to do this once, okay? And I know it's not going to work. And I don't want to see you after that anymore. I don't want to hear you, okay? I said, thank you very much. Just give me one chance. We did it. And I remember very well, there was Henri Leconte, and uh, John McEnroe in the final against myself and my friend Guy Forger. And the court six, it was packed, 6,000 people, and there was like four or 5,000 people want to come in, but there was no room. And on the same, on the center court, they, they had the quarter final of the men's singles. There was Alex Correcha, the guy I love, he's a very he's great, great tennis player, great man. And Felix Mantilla, they were playing in the, there was 400 people in the center <laughs> court, 6,000 in our court. And I was watching the president of the French Tennis Federation and Patrice Clerc. While I was playing, I was telling him, oh, what do you think? This is nonsense. This is not working. And he was smiling and say, thumbs up, Mansour, you're doing a great job. And we don't want to do it again. So, uh, and it's been 24 years now. It's amazing. It's so, amazing. So, so hope and, 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 uh, and never give up. Uh, I think you should, people should, because unfortunately, sometimes people give up early, you know, soon. But, you know, you, you can, if you keep coming back, it, things can happen. 
Your your story is an amazing one. I am so grateful uh, we all are that you've spent so much time today. Thank you for doing this. Before I let you go, let me ask you one final question, which is, I mean, this is a show about the stories from the Iranian diaspora. You talked a little earlier about your relationship with your identity and Iran. What is your relationship to being Iranian these days? Um, and be honest, be rock. I mean, do you feel more French? How do you feel when Iranians around the world still claim you as their own? I love Iran, as I said. I love France. Both. This, I'm proud of being Iranian. I'm proud of being French too. You know, France has accepted me in this country. My wife is French. My kids are born here. I love this country. And Iran is in my heart. Every day, every second, I think about Iran. And everywhere I see Iranians who are, uh, they have some kind of success. I'm proud of them. And really, uh, I, people come to me uh, in different cities, countries, when I'm playing, hey, Mansoor, I'm Iranian, I came to see you, I saw you are playing here, and I just, if I have time, I just have a tea with them or coffee or something. If I have no time, I just shake their hand, I say, I'm sorry, I gotta go. It's, um, thank you for coming, and it's, it's, it's really, uh, from, I am always happy to see when Iranians come to me and they say, Mansoor, uh, you know, we came to see you. That's it. And, and uh, Iran is a great country, I was there with my kids and, and wife uh, three months ago, in February, four months ago, and it's, there were some cities I didn't know. I really, it's, it's fantastic, but you know, we know that there is a delicate uh, situation, and, uh, but uh, my life is here, you know, and I really, I hope uh, the Iranian people are going to have good days ahead. I hope the, the things will go easier on them. Mansur, did you get recognized when you were in Iran? Do people know you? Yeah, people, they, they, they know me more now than, than 10, 15 years ago because with the, you know, the, the social YouTube, yeah, yeah. The media, you know, and yeah, there's more. I, but like 10, 15 years ago, when I was going there, in one week, maybe one people, one person in the street would say, ah, oh, Mansur. Now, every four or five meters, people uh, stop me. Hmm. But uh, And how does that feel, the country that you left when you were 20, in your early 20s? How does it feel yeah, to go back and be recognized? It's, you know, it's, it's uh, I played there in 2002, 2003, 2004. We had 10,000 people came to watch us, and there are, people are, thirsty of any events that you make. Anything you do, the people love to come and see you, uh, love to come see Europeans. I brought the Guillermo Villas there, Mats Villander, you know, Borg, all these guys, and they had the best uh, welcome, you know, and, and uh, people just want to live uh, a, a normal life, you know, like everybody, everybody else. Thank you so much for this today. I hope uh, after this uh, COVID is, is really done, you, you will um, continue touring the world, that we'll get to see you here in North America before too long. And uh, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank and thank you so much. Say hello, I mean, to everyone. Thank you for listening to me. And, and uh, it was a pleasure. Good afternoon.
That is the great Mansour Bahrami. He joined us from Paris, France today. special themed episode of Rook the Tennis Titans. I'm Gian Gameshi. You can find out all things you need to know about Rook. Check out our previous episodes. Check out other shows on this network. Uh, visuals, funnies, videos, Rook moments, all of that at rookmedia.com. Rookmedia.com, where you can also become a patron or inquire about being a sponsor for our show, which we really appreciate. Well, there are very few athletes in the world, let alone any of Iranian descent, who can claim to have made it into the top rankings of professional tennis internationally. There are even fewer who can cite the fact that they've been number 15 in the world. But my second guest today has exactly that distinction. Aravone Rezaei is a French-Iranian tennis player who made a huge splash as a strong teenage tennis phenom in the early 2000s, then rose to the top rankings of pro tennis by her early 20s, defeating top players on the WTA tour, such as Justin Henin, Venus Williams, and Maria Sharapova. She also won gold medals for Iran, competing at the Muslim Women's Olympic Games. But... Like most things in life, what can seem dreamy from the outside can be more complex and fraught with challenges in reality. Aravon had to overcome the hurdle of coming from a modest family and a rich person's sport, the difficulties of racism as a young player of Iranian descent in France, and the issue of a volatile father who was her coach for most of her career. All that and sacrificing her youth almost entirely for the purposes of a sport can be quite a burden. As such, Aravon stepped away from the game for a while in the last decade, much to the sadness of her fans around the world, including those in Iran. But now she's back and focused on tennis again in her early 30s. And now she's armed not just with a powerful tennis swing, but perspective and wisdom that comes from some distance and growth. And right now, Aravon Rezaï joins me from Saint-Étienne, France. Hello, bonjour, salam. Tu Yeah, you can say everything you want. How are you doing? Great, great. Thank you. Um, happy to be to be with you and uh, and share my story with you. Are, are we taking you away from training? Are you were you just training, or where are you right now? Well, actually, um, actually today I, I had a day off. But uh, usually I train every day and um, even Sunday. So, but actually I'm, I'm, I'm in my car. You're in your car? Yes, I do. I do. Why, why, why are you in your car? Well, I'm in my car because uh, I prefer to be in the car because at home I have a parrot. And my parrot <laughs> just keeps speaking Farsi all the time. And <laughs> that's why I'm in my car. Wait, <laughs> wait, wait a minute. You're so if... We- <laughs> <laughs> so if you were talking, I think we're zooming with you. If you were zooming from from your home right now, your parrot would be talking in the background in Farsi. Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and what would is it a he or a she? Oh, she. And what she would, keeps talking. What would she be saying? 
well, my name, and she was, she's always like repeating what I'm saying all day long. Uh, <laughs> I know, all in Farsi, and that's... that's so she doesn't it. speak French or, or English? No, she doesn't. She, Only in Persian. <laughs> she's, a, she's a very nationalistic Persian uh, parent. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Actually, I have two, I have two dogs. Uh, I have two dogs, and I speak with with them in Farsi. So, yeah. <laughs> you do. You don't. You don't. But, but I mean, what is your? Uh, uh, you you were born in France. You've grown up there. Yes. You spent your entire life, in fact, in France. I would think that your first language would be French. Yes, or is it Farsi? Well, first, well I would say my first language is 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 Farsi because I uh, I was speaking at home with my parents. Since I, I I was born and I, I just remember I, I always speak Farsi, and I learned French at school when I started to go in school. So, but I was born in France. So, yeah, I uh, I I always speak Farsi with my family, and then when I'm outside, I I speak French. <laughs> um, listen, um, and and speaking of which, we we will do this in English. You haven't done a lot of interviews in English, but so if you want to lapse into Persian or French at any point, you're welcome to do so. But I think your your English is fabulous. So thanks for doing this in English. Yeah, thank you. Yes, actually, um, yeah, my English is not as good as 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 yours. <laughs> Because well, I never learned really to to speak English at school. I just learned on you know on traveling and being on the court with people, and I just learned English like that. So I never had the opportunity to learn perfectly my to be f- fully good. By the <laughs> so, way, yeah, I try my. I will try my best. By the by the way, when 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 players at the international level, when you've got uh, Justin Henin and Maria Sharapova, who's from Russia, and Venus Williams, who's from the from the U.S., and everybody's meeting on the court, is it basically standard that everybody speaks English to each other? Well, usually those players, when they come from, I mean, Sharapova, Maria Sharapova, lived in America right, for right, many right, years, right, right. so. Um, yeah, we have most of the players. They know English because they, they, they maybe they were born somewhere, but they grew up somewhere else or in America, in Florida, and um, but lately we have Asian players. They, they, they for many years they struggle with the language and French people. They do too, <laughs> and uh, and uh, actually Rafael Nadal for many years had uh, had issues with inter views after matches because he, he couldn't speak perfectly f- English yes so he had um, a, a, a person just sitting there during interview to translate uh, what the journalists were were talking or asking questions and lately he, he learned how to speak English but uh, it's it's um, tennis is a sport that we are on the top level very early in our age i would say 18 17 uh, 19 so really we don't we don't get to an age that we 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 are mature enough to learn a language or to do something else on beside of tennis you know, we, we don't have much time for well, that. Well, you've done pretty well. I mean, you're a, a, a French girl who has a Farsi-speaking parrot, and a, 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 and you're doing interviews <laughs> oh in English, God. so it's not so bad. By the way, you mentioned Rafa Nadal. Yes. I guess he's a friend of yours, or you guys trained together. There's a bunch of pictures I, I found of you two. Uh, you've you've Or you competed together, or what? what's the relationship mm. there? 
No, well, Rafa, I know him since um, I probably say um, 13 years old because, you know, European Championship, we were, he has one, he, he's one year older than me. So we travel a lot together. We do, we did a European Championship together with other countries, Italy, Spain, France. Usually we are always together on the team. And I, as far as I remember, we played a lot of tournaments together uh, at the same time, same, same places. And uh, it was him and Djokovic and Del Potro and many other players in my age. We, we traveled a lot together at that time. But uh, with Rafa, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of him because he's, um, he's a super champion for me. And I always respected his career and I had the opportunity to to get to know him and talk to him and see his training and actually even to hit with him many times. And uh, and yeah, but we never compete together, but we we had a friendly, uh, I would say, uh, relationship like uh, like, like yeah, like uh, like players, you know, like players playing athletes and right, right. and respecting each other. So you're but, you're kind yeah, of like a you're a female Rafa to a certain extent because he's known as a real power hitter, right? Isn't he? Yes. And that's he your is, and yeah. that's your greatest asset as well, or one of them. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm 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 a I'm a player that hits very hard the ball, and uh, I always watch men's matches. I never watch women's. I like to watch male because I learn a lot from male matches and and it's it really inspires me to to play better. Interesting. So and Rafa is one of his game that I like, but before Rafa I was I was uh, watching Andre Agassi a lot. So my 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 game and my type of game is based more on Andre Agassi's game. <laughs> Well, listen, let's get into your story, because I, I, I know there are a lot of uh, Iranians around the world, I'm sure a lot of French nationals, too, who are very proud <laughs> of you, but may not know about all you've been through, Erevan. And, you know, you mentioned Andre Agassi. Um, yeah. I, I had the chance to interview Andre Agassi about 10 years ago, and, and I'll be honest, it was quite heartbreaking uh, to hear he was, he was very honest. It was a great, and I really appreciated talking to him, but, but it was heartbreaking to hear him say, he hates tennis. He does not like tennis. He said the sport that he had given everything to was something he was quite bittersweet about because of all that it had taken from him um, and, and the pressure that he had felt from his father and the family. And I sense you are somewhat in the same position uh, as your hero, Andre Agassi, as someone who has excelled remarkably at this sport, but you don't always love it. Would that be correct? Well, yes, it, it is correct because, well, I would say everybody's, every tennis player, they're not in the same situation. But for my situation, yes, I'm, I'm a person that I can say that I don't, I don't like tennis. It's not, it's not a sport that I will do on my Sunday or I will enjoying the, I'm not enjoying playing tennis. Uh, what I enjoy, it's it's really competing, uh, winning matches, and to be able to win matches, we need to train hard. So we suffer a lot on court. We suffer a lot outside of the court. So all that, you know, it's it, it hurts. It hurts a lot. You have to 
keep fighting. You have to find solution. You have to find um, power and strength to to win matches and to keep winning. So, uh, but you, but do you, the, but do you understand how extraordinary it might be for someone to hear you say? I, I, you don't like tennis. I mean, there's this, it's, it's partly because we're used to a lot of athletes, you know, uh, Michael Jordan or say, saying, all I've ever wanted to do is play basketball. So now I'm a basketball star. And so to hear an athlete like yourself or Andre Agassi be carrying this burden of saying, I don't, I don't even, I don't like this. Um, it, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's, it's hard to hear. Well, because, yes, because I, I, I didn't choose to play tennis. They choose it for me. Ah. They already made my life to be like that. They already made my career before I was born. They, my dad had the the idea of making a champion, a tennis champion, before I was born. What What is incredible is to have a goal and to reach that goal. And that's for me, it's extremely extraordinary because you can, it's like you jump on a mountain uh, without any anything you know you just jump and you don't know where you get and where you are it's it's just you jump and that's what my father did he jumped with no clue <laughs> but he jumped and we get there we we arrive to we, we reach our goal but okay and, this is, let, let me let me take this step by step because this yeah. is this is <laughs> such an interesting twist in your story growing up uh, you know, most Iranian parents, as you probably know, want the kid to be an engineer or a doctor or, exactly. or astrophysicist. <laughs> uh, and, and the kid may want to be an athlete. In your case, by the way, I know that one of your things that you always wanted to be was an astrophysicist. In your case, yes. it was your father who was encouraging you to go into tennis. So tell us how this happened for you. Well, I, um, I, I have an older brother that was on the court already playing before me. But uh, before my, my, my brother, Anoush, my brother, he used to be a, a good tennis player, but, but not professional. Uh, I, re- I remember uh, 1983, uh, Yannick Noah won Roland Garros. And, um, the French Open. And my father, yeah. in French Open, yes, yeah. French Open. Before you are born. And then, yeah, yeah yes. like I would say four years before I, I, I were born. And then, uh, yes, he's, he saw Yannick Noir jumping on his father's arms and then winning Roland Garros French Open. And then he said, okay, that's the, that's the sport I choose for my son. So then it's like a virus, you know. He, the virus went in his brain and never have been out for 30 years. So he had a, a goal is to, to his son to be a champion. So from that moment, uh, he started to train my brother every day, every day since he was uh, three years old. Yes, three years old, he started to play tennis. And then every day, and then, and then in 87, 1987, uh, I, I was born. <laughs> so then I, the next five years, I, I was like, taking the ball on the court, being on the court. And um, my father didn't pay attention to me. He was always on the court training my brother. And then, you know, the relationship between father and daughter is very special. So it's more fusional, more, um, I would say, is different, you know. Father and son is different, but 
father and daughter it's something something else and then i realized that my father didn't even pay attention to me mm. so i decided to take a racket one day and just hit the ball back the 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 ball of my brother when he was hitting i just hitting back <laughs> and then he realized that oh i, I had a i had the talent and i everything every day that i was spending on the court cleaning the ball or taking the ball and i was just learning uh everything he was saying to my brother so i start to play from that day every day and i and my father realized very quick that i had a very good results and i was beating all the player from that moment i was probably 10 years old Agaba, then, why why were you so good? I mean, you're pretty you're 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 pretty small in stature. Uh, I, I yeah. know you're known now as this intense performer with a lot of power. But as a ten year old, why why were you suddenly so good at tennis? Do you know? Um, maybe I would say my father. He's a good coach. <laughs> but why yeah, were you better than your brother? Coach. Like, what was your natural talent that you had that 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 seemed to that you you excel my fighting spirit uh-huh, i would say uh-huh. i'm a fighter yeah the 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 way i i like to win the 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 way i like to compete the way i fight on the court i would say it's mental yeah and you've always been that way spirit. you were you were like that as a kid yes always <laughs> not only in tennis uh-huh. in every any any kind of i played a lot of chess at that time and I always wanted to win. <laughs> so I could I could die, but I, I refused to lose. <laughs> that was my <laughs> wow. that was my way of thinking. So so you you very quickly become this um, little young star in tennis, and then in your early teens, you know this becomes something of a of a family business. Let me let me just go, go back a little bit because yes. I, I I mentioned this in the in the in the introduction, but tennis is, from what I understand, I mean all that I've ever learned about it, it is a class oriented sport. It costs a lot to play. It costs a lot to train. It costs a lot to tour if you yes. want to be at the top levels. If you want to be one of the best. And you come from a relatively modest family, right? You don't come from a, a lot of wealth. Your your family wasn't super rich yes. growing up. So exactly. you become this tennis player, and is it is it true that the, the 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 family basically kind of builds a business around you? Yes, they they. I mean, my father was my coach, but then quickly, I had my brother as a hitting partner because uh, when you play tennis, you need a partner. But my brother was part of my project, my my goal, and that business, and and my mother. My mother, uh, for many years, she was a, a, a medical student for many years, and she had to retire because of me, because she was pregnant of me. <laughs> so uh, then she decided to stop everything and to follow me and to uh, start to do recover with me and stretching. She was kind of my physiotherapist. And so I had my father, my mother, my brother, and me. And I have a lot, of, a, a little, uh, a younger sister, which she, she, she had to sacrifice a bit her parents because she was alone many, many times, many years, and she, yeah, she misses her parents, and she, it's a kind of sacrifice she makes for me. So, so but, let me let me get this straight. So by the 
by the early 2000s you're you're in your mid-teens and yes the and and i mean this is just a it you know, this is a lot of pressure to put on a, yes. a young girl i mean you are you are basically not just feeling the pressure to be a good tennis player not just being the pressure to be a good daughter but you're carrying the financial pressure yes. of the family Were you, exactly how, how was that for you well uh, how how can i explain um, when you're young, you don't, you you have no choice. You have to move on. Um, I I can see how how much my parents they were they were spending time and and money for my career for my best. I couldn't disappoint them. I I, I had to do my best. But uh, I knew that I was the only one that could bring the money at home. And if I had if I there there were some tournaments that we had money to go, but we had no money to go back to come back, and I had to win the tournaments. Wow. And then and then and they they were players much stronger than me. So then at that time at that point it's a it's a survival process. So you have to win. It's not is it's not fun. It's just you have to win to to eat or to come back. So. And so if, you, if, so if you don't win, you are feeling, again, not just the pressure that you've disappointed yourself as a, as a competitor, not just the pressure that you're, you've disappointed your coach, but you're worrying about that you don't win the prize money, too, and, uh, that, yes. that the family needs. Exactly. Wow. That's what I, and then when you go on the court with that goal and you know what, what, what is the game it is, it is about, then you you fight you just go to to you just go on the court and you kill your your opponent you have no choice you have to because i because i train so much i train eight hours a day every day and then i had the opportunity to to win the tournament so it's it was a matter of just being stronger and just fight and and that that was that that's why i was better than everyone because I train much more than everyone else. And then I had that uh, pressure that the others didn't have. And, and that's probably, it's a, it's a pressure, but it's a, it's a strain at, at the time, you know? How, how, would it's, you, it's a, how would you suspect your family would tell this story? Because I, 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 I guess the inverse of this, or the, the opposite story, or from their perspective, it could be, we saw some talent in our daughter. She seemed to really take to tennis. So we sacrificed everything to make sure she was a champion. Would they say that? Yeah. Of course they do. But, uh, you know, Iranian parents, they, they always do that. But, uh, yeah, but it, it, it's okay. I'm fine with that. And, and of course, they sacrifice and they are right to say it. It's okay. My my goal is to see the results. I don't care what how people see or how people talk. Or my goal was to to win and to be different. I remember when I was on on school, and uh, my my teacher. You know when you're young and the teacher always asks, uh, "What do you want to do later on?" And you and and my my uh, schoolmate they were saying, "Oh, I want to be um, a doctor." The other were, was saying, oh, I want to be, I don't know, um, 
a soccer player or whatever. And when it comes to me, I said, I want to be unique. Hmm. And all the kids, all the kids, they were laughing at me. I said, oh, it's not a job. It's, it's stupid. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I said, I don't care. What I want to do is to be different than anyone but that's, else. But here's the thing you were different and it wasn't always easy to be different too because i know that exactly. beyond the other stuff we've talked about in terms of the financial pressures and the class elements and the be, being pushed into tennis and all that you also faced some racism as a young athlete in france which exactly it, it it's exactly. surprising to me because you're you're you know you you born in france and and you know uh, you're this pretty girl you I, I i you're good at tennis i would have thought okay maybe you could just get away with this in terms of but i guess folks would see you as middle eastern or would see you as iranian exactly and, and how did it play out what would they say what would they do well um you know i i had a lot of um moments uh that i felt very bad because yeah, uh, tennis. It's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a tough sport because we are, we are, well, we are Iranian, but in France, uh, th there are not big community and um, Iranian community, and uh, and especially in our 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 town, and um, well, people think thought that we were Arab Arabic or. Algerian or Moroccan or ah. and they, they thought that we were like Arabic and they they don't like you know the French people they are they have problem with Algerian Moroccan because of their history before and and um, and yeah they were comparing us to them and and many times I had the for example I had to the, the Federation French Federation had to they have to help me all the players they i don't know they get some money and me i i never had any help financial help because uh, i was training with my father because we were not part of the french federation they always protect the french one wait, wait a minute and but, you, others, but weren't you were, a french but you're a french citizen are you not yes unfortunately yes but uh, you know i'm not blondie or you know it's different you know uh -huh, uh -huh. and <laughs> And well, my father, when you look at him, you can really see he's a Persian that you can, you can, you can see it. <laughs> right, so, right. you know, strong voice, strong look. How did you react to that at the time, Erevan? Did, did you resent the fact that you were Iranian? Did you, were you angry at your parents for being Iranian or, or, or did you? No, did you, not at all. You, no, no. You understood what was happening. You understood that this well, was. Well, I was, I, you know, I hate. I hate when something is unfair, and I, I, um, unfortunately, I, I experienced a lot of situation that it was unfair. And um, when I see, well, when I was a victim of that, I mean, people they were cursing at me sometimes, and they were saying a lot of bad things. Um, and um, well, that gives me more energy and empowered to working harder and to win matches and then mm. and then those people they were like treating me bad the year after the two years after they come back and say oh you remember i was one of your fan or blah 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 <laughs> right and right, right. I said, okay. when you start winning yeah, they think they, they I, and, I, and i bet you suddenly became french too to a lot of people once yes, you started winning exactly. right yeah exactly and then 
slowly I became a Frenchy girl with Iranian origin, and then <laughs> right. yeah, it was it was funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, um, uh, by the way, you don't you don't seem shy on the court. I mean, there was this period where you were competing in these, like you had some flashy outfits, gold outfits. Did, 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 <laughs> yeah. did you like the attention that came with that? Or, or you, cause your style got quite a lot of attention for, for a while as well. Yeah. Um, you know, um, my friend, she was a, a designer and she was Iranian and, um, she was a great designer and I wanted to help her to have a brand, Iranian Persian brand, to be part of the tennis world. Mm -hmm. And um, we share a lot about the style, the, the design that I would like to have. So we had a common, uh, you know, uh, agreement to help each other. And, um, and yeah, actually, my two favorite color was gold and black. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and she made a, a design that I would say, okay, let's do it. Let's go. But no, I'm not shy because I like to be different. You know, so, I, I love this. I love I love the fact that, <laughs> no, really, that, that you, even though you were sort of made fun of or, or people said offensive things towards you as a kid because you were different, not only do you make it through that, but you... You're, you embrace being different. I mean, that's what we hope that every kid can do, but somehow you found your way to do that. Um, and, and it's got to be, I mean, it. you know, I always think about tennis players as a, the only sport I ever excelled in is it soccer, football, and I, and so yeah. I, I'm always playing with a team. And I think about a tennis player out on that court by yourself, uh, there it, it's inevitably got there's got to be so much pressure let, let alone all yeah. the other things that we're placing on this and then to put yourself out there and and to create the conditions where you're you're even more unique uh it speaks to uh, a real confidence that you had when when you're still a teenager you you also win two tennis gold medals at this um muslim women olympic games uh, that happened in yes. iran what, what was it like to compete and win in Iran for you? Well, um, I remember uh, when I had the opportunity to go to Iran and to play there with my father. Um, yeah, I mean, people, they were interesting how powerful, how strong I, I, I was playing. And and they quickly, they're, they're, they recognized me and they said, oh, we, we really want you to play for that event, for that Olympic game. And obviously, I never had the opportunity to play because I knew that it was an event and, and not a, a tournament. And I said, "Well, let's let's experience that because uh, you know I, I I always play play in France. I always I, I felt that I'm I'm French, but to play in Iran it was totally different, uh, different experiences. You know, to play only in indoor between women and all that was totally, I mean, funny at that time, but now it's, it's less funny. <laughs> but uh, funny when you're 14 years old, it's funny. You're inside, you experience, you play with women, you enjoy the, the, the team. But, um, yeah, I mean, if I had to do it again, I would do it. But obviously, it's a good memory that that I play there. I enjoy, I mean... And in my career, I can say I won two medal goals uh, in Iran, but 
what I want to win is French Open. <laughs> That's uh, gotcha, more for interesting sure. for me. <laughs> did, did you feel... Um, I guess around that time, especially as as you begin to ascend into the top rankings in tennis too, um, in in around a little later than that, did you yeah. start to feel like you have a? I mean, I, I can only imagine you had a. There's a couple of people on the Rook team who were growing up in Iran at that time who say they remember knowing about you, hearing about you, like you became a star in Iran. Would yeah. you were you aware of that? Would you hear that when you when you would go and compete in these games? Did you know that you had all these fans in Iran? Uh, well, um, I realized later on that I had a lot of fans. Not on that moment, because I wasn't on, on the social media. I mean, Instagram it's less than ten years. Facebook probably a bit more than ten years, and I wasn't on, on the social media. It's uh, just later, lately, when I went back to Iran and, and I, I had an Instagram, people knew my name. Um, when they say my name, they, they, they heard my name, they, they know me, but they, but they don't know my face. It's funny <laughs> because they had no clue what I'm looking like, I'm look like. It's, <laughs> it's funny. But they know my name. They know it's Aravan Rezaid playing tennis, but they don't. They don't have idea how I look like. So lately, I realized how much fun I have in Iran, and I try actually uh, since I have Instagram to share my story, my life with them, and speak Farsi with them because I like to also share what I'm living and share my experience. My 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 the way I, I improve and the way I, I had to reach that level where I, what I have to do to go through that you know it's yes. it's important for them to know because most of them they say oh you live in France it's easy for you to to reach your you know your goal here in Iran we can't it's difficult and it's not as easy but even here I I, I had a hard time to to be a champion so anywhere in any world you when you 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 want you have a goal you 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 want something you can you can have it it depends how much you know intensity yes. how much uh your determination your 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 strength it is <laughs> to get you know, there this coming from you is important because because i i think your story is quite inspirational at this point now but even if we had spoken five years ago, I mean, you did have a downfall. You went through a very difficult period. And yeah. right before that, so, you know, uh, just to catch people up who don't know the exact story, by October 2010, I mean, you become the number 15 player in the world. You've defeated yes. some very big names. You come close to beating Serena Williams in this big match. I remember that one. D did you have any idea at that stage that that things may unravel for you, that things could go bad, or were you just on top of the world? No. Um, for me, uh, when I won Madrid or I won those big tournaments, I, I had no clue that was probably the last year that I will compete. No, um, actually, I didn't think like that because I had uh, my goal was to be number one in yes. the world. So... Uh, I was on on the track to uh, I beat all the, the top players and I, I always you know work hard for that. But at the moment, you know when you when you are in a family business and you were talking before just 
early in, in the interview, the pressure of the family. Yes. At some point, the pressure has to go out somehow. Yes. And then the pressure was stronger, more, more harder. And the, the family business, uh, it wasn't for me as important as it was. It, it, it was more like I, I was thinking more about myself. Uh, and at that moment, I wasn't that happy. I had a, a trophy, but I wasn't happy in my life. So, and so I give on. So, let, let, let's be specific about this, if you don't mind. Tell tell yeah. me about this relationship with your father as a coach, because he is known or was known at least as very volatile. He could be very difficult. I know things are different now, and you guys have reconciled. But but take yeah. me back. When did that? When did the way he acted start to become an issue for you? Well, since I was a kid, it was like that. But you know, when I start to reach the top level. I really felt the, the pressure of my father. Um, and then, you know, when you get higher, you want more. Yeah. You want more and more and more. It's, it's always like that. Yeah. And, uh, and then, so the media was there, uh, the financial thing, money was there. A lot of topics, you know, on, it, it was, I don't know how to explain. It's like, you know, you have a, a, a big balloon and suddenly everything explodes because yeah. it's too much. Yeah. And then at some point when I reach a, a, a high level, I realized that I needed a, a new coach. And um, and then my father really didn't accept that. So well, the, well, there's the a, well, there, wanted, there's a big incident yeah. that happens. I mean, there's a few, but there's one at the Australian Open in 2011. And exactly. your your father is accused of violence and threatening your boyfriend at the time, and the WTA <laughs> bans him from the tour indefinitely, pending investigation. The Victoria Police are called in. W what can you tell us about that time? Well, the media talks many things, say many things, but most of the time is not true. Okay, so, what's true yeah. about that? Which what what was true and what's not true? Yeah, well, yeah, at that time I um, I had some problem with my father we argue i argue with my father and then uh, and then yeah i had a boyfriend at that moment but my father knew my boyfriend and then it wasn't the, the issues the boyfriend wasn't the issue but the media decided to include my boyfriend inside and, and it wasn't it, it wasn't the, the 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 problem at that moment but uh the problem was i i argue with my father and i decided to split the work, the the coaching, I split with my father. I said, okay, you're not my coach anymore. And then I decided to leave. So, uh, you know, it, it didn't go well. <laughs> it didn't go well. And then we, we argue, we fight, and then I stopped there. And then the media decided to make a big, big But was deal. he, what, did he get banned? Uh, he get banned. Yes, he did. Because why, why did he, he get banned? He, he got banned, yeah because um they were making okay your your threat your threatened but by your father you need to be protected and and then at the moment my father was pretty pretty you know uh, pretty hard with me and then i i didn't want to play tennis anymore yeah. i decided to just stop a bit to to put my career on hold yeah. uh, i couldn't play uh, free free in the mind i couldn't be happy on the court and I decided just to stop a bit to recover from all this pressure 
and then to play it to come back. Okay. But did you did you did did you end up suing him or is that a I, I can't tell if that's no real. I didn't no no, no I didn't sue some, him okay, no okay that's that's a made up story in the media. yeah okay yeah okay. so uh, <laughs> well who I I I wanted to say something yeah which family don't have issues of course we no, we yeah, we all yeah. do and unfortunately I was I was on my highest ranking yeah. and the newspaper the journalists they were you know hoping or uh, looking for a micro or a fight to to make it big you know believe so, me i get it i for sure i, I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about listen uh, uh but the but the, the reality is you're at the top of your game as an athlete as you say and you make this decision around 2011 2012 you're only 24 years old to, that, that you want to take a break you've also told me that that you had to actually stay on for a while though because you had pressure of sponsors who so even when you want to take a break then and get out of this cage that you're in you you have to continue because you've got You've got to live up to the to, to, to agreements that you've made with sponsors. Is that true? Well, yeah, I couldn't. I mean, I had like um, we say um, um, a guarantee tournament. I had to when you enter a tournament, you have to tell them they pay you to come to the tournament. Right. Some some tournament and they make a lot of advertising right. on you. So right. you have to be there when you play. I, I felt that I, it was unfair. Yeah. to them to not keep playing and i always fair to people to my sponsor and i always being correct so i kept i keep playing a bit even though i wasn't i wasn't fully uh, focused on my career but i i just being on the court and try to to do my best on the court but i wasn't mentally there and you you've already made the case that part of the part of the, the the magic of being a top player the way you the the, the heights that you you reach and that you've reached yeah. are is mental acuity is, is is mental fortitude being strong exactly. mentally so when things are falling apart behind you uh getting on that court alone and and being number one becomes that much more uh of a mountain to climb right yeah you know being at, at that moment my tennis career wasn't as much as uh, it wasn't important for me my health my mental health was more important and i moved to spain i moved to spain yes. for four years actually my my ex-boyfriend uh, was spanish and then I, I went there and i keep focus on my personal life and then i said always uh, I, i'm gonna come back on the tour i'm gonna start again the practice in one month two months i, I keep pushing the, the the training and i realized that after seven years <laughs> I, I i i wasn't i wasn't on the court <laughs> so but i i really enjoying working on myself to see the person i am who i am and yeah, during probably four years, I moved to Spain. You know, it's amazing that you that you made that decision. That you had the uh, the strength of character to say, "No, I'm going to step away," and I'm going to, you know, I I know it couldn't have been easy. I'm sure there were some arguments. Uh, what what was it like to be away from your family after having uh, not just obviously being close to your family, but but being at the center of this family business for for all of your life until this point where you go to Spain, what was that like for you? 
Well, you know, I I decided to not play because I I I don't like to lose first. So I'm I'm a person that when I go on a court, I go to win. So I knew that I wasn't training good enough to to compete. So I preferred to to be away from the tournament. And when I put a step on the court, it's to win. That's why I decided to not play. To I I don't like to be half ready. I like to be fully right, ready. Right, right. And when you're a center of attention of a family, and suddenly you're alone, um, that was a decision that I I, I wanted to I, I wanted to be alone. It was mm. it, it was my decision. I wanted to be away from everyone, from everybody that knew me on on court or outside of the tennis court. Were there times when you were away um, from everybody and everything, as you say, where you thought, I'm not going to go back to tennis? This is it? I'm done with that? Never, never, never. Uh, actually, in 2017, uh, I made a decision, uh, and then I went uh, to a road that calls uh, Compostela Road, it's a it's a Christian road actually uh, that people go to pray and and start from France and they walk till Portugal. So you have to cross all the France, mm. go to Spain, cross the Spain, and go to Portugal. And that and I walk probably uh, six hundred kilometers alone. Wow! With, with my bag, and I went uh, through all the France and Spain. And uh, because I needed to find myself, who I, who I am. Wow! And um, I didn't know anything about this. Does anybody know uh, about this? Name <laughs> does your yeah. parent? Does your parent know about this? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They know, uh, and they, yeah, of course they know. But you know, in that road, you're alone. You're alone, and you walk, and you're in the nature. And then I walk for yeah, seven hundred, six hundred kilometers. And then I walk probably for months and I just keep walking, walking, walking. And at that moment, I realized after my, after my walk, I realized that uh, I wanted to start professionally again. So wait, wait, 2000- a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hang on a second. Yeah. You walked for <laughs> 600 kilometers. So yes. how, how many days, how long did it take you? It's ter- approximately I walk between twenty-five to thirty kilometers a day. So, okay, so this like it, it was about a month you were doing this. Yes, yes, and a bit more than a month. Where, and you, you, with a backpack. With a backpack, exactly. And and you you did this totally alone. You weren't with friends. You weren't alone. No, no, alone, alone. <laughs> and did you would you stop at where would you stay at night? Well, it's a it's a pretty popular road, so okay. there are places for the um, for the people they walk, and there are like uh, rooms or hotel, mini mini apartments, and you walk until you're tired, and then you stop and you you sleep, you eat there, and you go the next day. You wake up and you go and you walk. And so. Uh, at the, uh, of course, like the, everybody listening right now wants to do this walk. I want to go do the walk. <laughs> <laughs> or sort of, actually, if I could do it less than a month, that would be. So So at the end of the, the this walk, I mean, 
um, is it obviously it's kind of meditative, right? Like as you're walking, you're thinking. We can you're, say yes. Yeah. It's like a, a meditate a bit, and then I focus on 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 me. On actually, I focus on my life. I, I focus on who I am. Uh, the the oxygen that I was breathing, the the nature, the trees, the 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 bird, the flower, every every little thing I was paying attention of the beauty of the of this world, and then you realize that in this world you're you're nothing, you're just a, a, a human, and then you can die the next day, and and that. And by, by the way, so, let me let me let me just put this into perspective. <laughs> so by this time. You're a woman in your late twenties who has, up until the last couple of years, spent yeah. your entire life, almost every moment of your entire life, focused on this career that you've had since you were a little kid, with your family around you, with TV cameras around you, with uh, yeah. uh, the tennis courts around you, and and that's that's been all that you've been able to do, and yeah. suddenly you're alone with a knapsack walking um what's one of the biggest things you learned about yourself on that walk um i would say how strong mentally i i am how that i could pass all the limits that i can imagine or um i would say how my strength is to remember from where I, I I came from, that's that's the point. Where I come from, where my family came from, my grandfather, and 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 back and back. So I have to understand all my generation story, and then one once you realize all this, all the 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 where they went through and what they have to do to to keep living. And why I I ask myself why I'm living, why I'm alive, why you know you know it's it's um the, you ask yourself many questions yes. when you you walk and when you walk it's like you you, you ask yourself like um, life questions you know yes. universal question or about universe about whatever everything you 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 put on the table and you say okay who I am. And who I am is is Aravon, <laughs> and and what I want is to be a champion. And then now I'm ready to go on. Now I'm ready to move on. And 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 now I, and after that walk, I realize who who really I was and I am. And and from that point, I put everything. Uh, I I do everything in my in in with all my power to with all my strength to come back on the top level so from that from that walk from that um i would say that path after after at the end i i knew what i, I wanted to do for who, the rest of my life who was the first person you told I, I mean no one i just did what i have to do when did you tell your then, when did you tell your parents when did you tell your dad no, I didn't. I didn't tell my parents. They don't even know that I did that. I mean, they know that I I did that road, but they they never thought that it, it's because of that road that I made the decision. No, um, 
I did that road and then I went to Paris actually. <laughs> I mean, at that moment I was in I was in Saint-Étienne and then when I made that decision, I I said okay, I'm ready. I took a, 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 my car and a bag and I went to Paris and start to organize my team without <laughs> my family. <sighs> so, they were they were not part of my career. I thought I thought to myself, okay, I want to start again, but they're not going to be part of my career. I'm going to do another career without them just because I want to do it. I, I, I decide to, to start that career with new people, with new coach, with new team. And how's it going? <laughs> for, for the first uh, six months, e- extremely bad, <laughs> I would say. It was, it, it was extremely bad because I realized how far I was from the level <laughs> that I, I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. So I realized that physically I was extremely, extremely late and I had to work a lot to, to be able to compete again. So I knew it's going to take a lot of time at that moment. You know, uh, looking at your social media and talking to you now, I mean, you do seem to be in in such a good place. In fact, your your Instagram, for example, is so full of inspirational sayings, things like "Don't yes. grieve," "Your attitude defines your altitude." You know, I love yes. that one. I mean, I think I'm translating it. It's in French in your Instagram, but I think that it translates that way into English. Um, uh, keep going. You know, this. This all makes sense to me now. I, I didn't know about the walk <laughs> and uh, and and the journey. I mean, the actual, you know, literal journey and and the uh, metaphorical journey journey you've been on as well um, to really knowing yourself. So, so uh, what? How is your relationship with your family these days? Well, it took a, a, a bit of time since two thousand seventeen. Um... Uh, when I went to Paris and then I started to organize my team to start again my career uh, for approximately a year. At that moment, uh, during one year, I just focused on my health to see what's missing, if I have no injuries, if I can do sport, if I can run, if I can... And then during one year, I spent my time in Paris and then after, I realized that after... uh, trying with few coaches uh, that I don't get good results. Uh, they were not as good as I, 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 want, I searched. Mm-hmm. And they were more like they wanted to work with me for the image, for the... They knew that my tennis uh, was is still good because actually I'm playing good tennis-wise, but... Physically, I need to work harder a bit, uh, and then they always wanted to to uh, I would say uh, take this part of me. They wanted to show on the media, oh, I'm working with Aravan and I'm her coach and I'm blah blah blah. She's coming back, she's trying, but I test with them, I try with them, and I realize that they don't have the you know they want to take a piece of you all the time and then. Uh-huh. They try to to use your image, and then I didn't like that. Uh-huh. So I start to think and say, okay, who's the best coach, <laughs> and who tried, who thinks that you're the best? Uh, 
it's your father. <laughs> they, they, he's gonna be always there for you, and and you that he's gonna be the only one that can brings you to the top, because he's gonna be the only one that can push you to the top. So, I I make a sacrifice. I said, okay, Aravan, you are. It was too hard for 20, 20 years, but you have to go back again and to to go back on the court and push again. And it's going to be tough, but you know what you want. So you you know what you need to do to get there. Whoa. So, so, so you went. So uh, yeah, this is father, like a, this is like I'm, I'm, I'm get, we're getting the last chapter of a novel. I want I'm, I'm waiting to see what happens. So did you go back with your father? Yes. So then uh, now it's it's less than a year that I'm working with my father every day, uh, every day. But our relationship is totally different than before. Uh, well, that it took time. Huh? It takes time to yeah. <laughs> to, to <laughs> it takes time to make everything to build everything. The relationship with my father it took a bit a bit of time, but now it's much better we are able to having fun together when i'm tired i say oh dad you know what i'm just tired i just don't want to play just give me a give me a break and he's like okay no worries what do you want so <laughs> he loves me so much oh. that he's like okay i don't want to lose you again i don't want to 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 i just want a daughter and and me i just want a father so our relationship is more healthy now and yeah. on the on the tennis wise i'm playing super good because when you're free in your mind then you're you're stronger then you can play better and and that's what is happening to me so this is, now, the, be- this is the best story i've ever heard this is a, this is a <laughs> great story i i had no idea that because I, I knew you were because you've been kind of a mystery, you know, like there's like you're coming back. People know that you're sort of doing tennis again and coming back. But but at least in the media publicly, there's not a lot of information. I know. I, I guess no. you've been you've been keeping it under wraps. Right. So I yeah, wasn't actually, sure who I'm, your coach not, was. I'm, or what. Yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not uh, sharing much. My I, we keep it a bit secret because actually I, I prefer to to show by with my results with winning matches i don't want to you know make a big deal and saying oh i'm coming back i'm gonna uh win all the tournaments no i i prefer i prefer to keep it low 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 key because we never know we never know what's gonna happen maybe i will reach there maybe not we we don't know so i prefer to keep it secret to work hard to to you know to do what I have to do and once I'm on the top and people will 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 hear will hear about me. <laughs> so when you but when you go back, I, I I have to know when you um make the decision that there's only one person who can push me the way I need to be pushed. There's only one person who can inspire me the way I need to be inspired. There's there's only one person who can antagonize me enough to get me angry to get out there on the court and, and push myself as hard, and that's my dad. Um, what was the conversation like with your dad? Did you Do you call him and tell him that? Do you turn up at the doorstep and say, okay, let's go? How did it happen? 
<laughs> I would say um, when my sister got married and then I met my father and then I spent a lot of time with my family and then um, yeah we slowly we get to to spend time together uh, but without talking about tennis so it, the, 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 the goal was okay let's enjoying the the family time Your family yeah and then and then slowly we start talking about okay what do you want to do in life he, he was asking me what do you want <laughs> what do you want to do where which point where you where you at you know <laughs> and i said i want to play tennis and he's like okay but you know to play tennis you have to work hard so i said yes <laughs> so that's how we start talking and then trying first to see uh, first 10 days. And then after 10 days, we decided to have a conversation and say, okay, is going to work? Are you happy? Are you not happy? What do you think? And then, yeah, we have a conversation now. We we can talk. Uh, Before it was, you know, a situation that, okay, I'm the father, you're my daughter and you have to listen and you have to do it. Now you've got agency now. Yeah. We share uh, ideas and then he listens to me and I listen more to him. So it's healthy and I'm happy with that. It sounds like, I mean, he needed the same break that you needed to get perspective. And it was, yeah. it was a lesson for him as well, uh, even though he didn't walk the 600 uh, kilometers. Um, <laughs> he, he, he felt them clearly. I'm so honored to hear this whole story and, and so inspired to... To, to, to be ch- cheering you on along with uh, so many people around the world uh, as you, uh, no matter what happens, you know, let's, uh, no matter what happens in terms of your tennis career. Um, I, I should say, and I want to just clear this up uh, for you too, because because um, I, I think I know a little bit about it and, and I want to give you the chance to explain. You know, a lot of the people listening to this program are of Iranian descent and you, you even on your Instagram, say you've got some, um, when the the flight 752 was shot down and things were difficult in january you've got a, a heart posted uh, uh, on the map of iran and you're you, you it's clear you wear your iranianness quite uh, proudly and 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 you feel that connection yeah. and you know you've you've had to deal with some iranians feeling that you're not acting as you should there was this situation in 2009 where you were invited yeah. to iran and you were put next to president ahmadinejad at the time <laughs> And yeah. you gave him a racket as some kind of formality. And then he ends up using that as an endorsement, as an advertisement in his election campaign. Exactly. And, and then you become associated with, you know, this being some big supporter of Ahmadinejad, even though that wasn't really your intention. I think if that's the way I, I know the story. Do you, do you want to exactly. clear that up for us? Yeah, it, 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 that, that was the case. It's... Yeah, I went to Iran. I I I, I was in, I, I was invited to Iran to not not even to meet meet the president at that moment. It's just you know being invited with the elites of uh, uh, Iranian from uh, not from Iran, right? They were living outside of Iran, but they were like doctors, surgeon, and they were the best in their country. And then we were all invited, and then. Uh, suddenly we are, well, I, I was 17, 16 years old and I didn't know all this, these things. And I went there alone without my father, without my mother. 
and my cousin it's a girl my, my cousin just uh, follow me and then she's older than me and like a mother she was taking care of me and then uh, I went there to that meeting and suddenly uh, I saw I mean my cousin said okay you're gonna meet the president uh, it's 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 great to give a gift you know and I was listening to that to that cousin and I said okay maybe she's right I don't know the you know the culture here what we have to do what we have to say or and it was for me new everything was new mm. and then i went to that meeting with two racket and then suddenly uh the president came to me and then with 20 cameras and journalists and and then and i didn't know what to say i did i, I start to cry <laughs> i start to cry because i was not expecting that situation and then i give the the, the two rackets and then my cousin start to uh, to to speak uh, uh, and say something in the camera and i was like keep repeating what she was saying because i, I didn't know what to say you. and then uh, <laughs> and then right. you know you, you at the moment i i don't know i didn't know what to say what to do and i say okay you, suddenly you have 20 cameras you don't know what to say right, and then right. i just keep give the racket and then I came out of that that conference, that meeting, and then many people told me that he uses for the um, the advertising for his election, and and I, for me, I said, okay, I don't I don't care, whatever, right? Because I didn't know the the politics in Iran right. how, and how that's things the they were going. That's the green movement election too. So people are particularly angry that they're like, why did this tennis girl come and support exactly. Ahmadinejad? And yeah. But imagine a French girl that just speak Iranian, have no clue about the political and siyasat or whatever is going in Iran. And that meets only the president because, well, it's at that moment I said, okay, it's an honor to meet the president. Yes. Like, that was the only way i i i i thought what are you supposed to say exactly i i understand very in an innocent way you know i i I didn't think what he was going after (laughs) i had no clue no idea well i'm glad that we've given you we cleared that up (laughs) that's what we can clear that perfect Perfect. (laughs) uh, you know i am so uh grateful for the time you've spent today i've i've enjoyed this it's great talking (laughs) to you and i uh um, like I said before, I can't wait to watch you back on the courts. <laughs> I hope, I hope, but thank you for, for listening to me and I'm happy to share all, all my stories and then, yeah, I hope you, you will cheer for me when you see me on TV because I really need your shares and then your, your strength and then to, you know, your encouragement really helps me to, to move on and to fight and to, to win matches. We will all be cheering for you. Me, my dog, Oogie, your parrot, uh, and everybody listening. We'll all be cheering for you. Um, thank you. Merci. As I'm talking to you again, thank you for doing this. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Arvon Rezaï, the French-Iranian tennis sensation. We reached her in her car in Saint-Étienne, France. This is full time for this special edition of Rook for today. Uh, For all things Rook, our previous episodes, all of our guests, information, videos, funnies, 
the Contemporary History of Iran episodes, go to rookmedia.com. That's where to find it all, rookmedia.com. That's where you can also become a patron of our program for 5 or $10 a month and uh, be a sponsor as well. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together, talented Anahita, Super Patty Sauce, Savvy Roham, Ponta the Artist, the fabulous Kion Araya Mehrdad, Captain Reza and Groovy Shaya. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you have not done so already. You can find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. Stay tuned for another special edition of Rook next Monday. In the meantime, Mizubashim. <laughs>